I get to come and visit every once in a while when Sylvia and Donald are, well now they're up the hill doing a, a retreat. And it's a particular treat for me because this was, you know, about 20 years ago, this was one of the first classes that I discovered. Um, is there anyone here who's, who's at this class for the first time? Ah, and your name is? Aki. I'm sorry? Aki. How do you? Aki. Aki. Yeah. Wonderful. And where are you from? Mill Valley. So nearby. Mm -hmm. And and is this the first time to Spirit Rock as well? No. Okay. As to this class? Anyone else who's here for the first time? To Spirit Rock for the first time? Uh-huh. Ted. Ted? And we're Mill from Mill Valley too. Well, welcome. Welcome. The rest of you are old hands and uh, what needs to be said, right? <laughs> I, um, I'm, I actually, I'm from Davis, and so I, I, uh, I host a sitting group there and, and work, practice with a bunch of people there. Um, and in my own practice, I find, I've, I'm finding myself turning more and more to the uh, to the to the Buddhist scriptures, to the to the original writings uh, or the original recordings of of the Buddhist teachings, um, and I wanted to draw particularly on on a, a, a sutta, a, a teaching that that the Buddha delivered this morning. I wanted to talk about. Um, and to uh, to just go through, the Buddha was talking about what what the Dharma is. Let me let me just also invite you in the course of this to feel free to interrupt. I have a, a, a one of my teachers likes to say it's a rule you have to interrupt. I won't go quite that far, but to please feel free if uh, you have a question about something that that uh, I'm talking about, or particularly if I start rambling aimlessly. <laughs> then you can sort of get my attention and say, here and now. So I'm going to read this sutta first. It's, it's relatively short. Um, most of the suttas were uh, initially um, rem remembered um, fairly soon after the Buddha died. There was a large council about three months after the Buddha died, and there were supposed to be 500 fully awakened beings at that, at that time. It was a round number. Um, there were 499 until the night before, and then Ananda, um, instead of going to sleep, he woke up. <laughs> and so they had 500 on the, the night of the council. But they... they uh, uh, recounted the the Buddha's teachings, um, and this is this is one of them. And and they they were usually presented this way. I've heard that at one time the Blessed One was staying at Vesali in the peaked roof hall in the great forest. Then Mahapajapati got to me. Let me say something about Mahapajapati. Mahapajapati was the Buddha's stepmother, wet nurse, and aunt actually. 
his mother, the Buddha's mother died a few days after childbirth, and Mahapajapati became his uh, parent and raised him. Um, I've seen statues of her uh, as the first Buddhist nun, um, in which she's depicted as being a young woman. But the Buddha was 35 at the time of his awakening, and so she was probably not a young woman uh, at the time. She came to him at one point and asked uh, the Buddha to ordain women, and, and she became the first of the, uh, the Buddhist nuns. But this is a situation that's a little bit different. She went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, stood to one side. As she was standing there, she said to him, It would be good, Lord, if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief, such that, having heard the Dhamma from the Blessed One, I might dwell alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. So if you were asked to describe the Dharma in brief, how might you do that? Particularly those of you who have some experience with it and been practicing for a while. Just to reflect for a moment how you might answer The Buddha said, Gautami, the qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to passion, not to dispassion, to being fettered, not to being unfettered, to accumulating, not to shedding, to self-aggrandizement, not to modesty, to discontent, not to contentment, to entanglement, not to seclusion, to laziness, not to aroused persistence, to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome, you may categorically hold, this is not the Dhamma, this is not the Vinaya, this is not the teacher's instruction. As for the qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I heard that. It's the IT department. These qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered, not to being being fettered, to shedding, not to accumulating, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontent, to seclusion, not to entanglement, to aroused persistence, not to laziness, and to being unburdensome, not being burdensome, you may categorically hold, this is the Dhamma, this is the Vinaya, this is the teacher's instruction. The Blessed One said this and gratified Mahabhajapati Gautami, delighted in his words. That's the entire sutta. You know, when I first encountered this, well, this is is an, an interesting sutta. Tan Jeff has compiled a book Tan Jeff is an American who's a, a, a monk and a scholar who's done a lot of translation of the original scriptures and, and has put them online. They're all available online. Uh, the website is access to insight, one word, access to insight.org. 
And it's, it's a really excellent resource. If you haven't discovered it, you can spend huge amounts of time there. It's just it's translations of the scriptures and uh, essays and, and Tanjev's books um, and books of some of the Thai forest monks. Uh, it's an incredibly rich resource. And he's, he's addressed this sutta in a book called Recognizing the Dharma or Recognizing the Dhamma. Dhamma is the Pali word for the teachings of the Buddha. Dharma is the Sanskrit version. And he's collected uh, in the book um, what I call sutta scraps from around the, from the Pali canon relating to each of these elements. And there are eight of them here. And I'm going to spend some time with each of them because they're not immediately obvious. I don't know what you would have chosen to uh, illustrate the, the Dharma yourself. But I found these things initially not, they weren't what I would have picked. They seem a little, they're not so sexy. You know, you know what I mean? Dispassion, not to passion. Dispassion, the Buddha, the Buddha was concerned with the kinds of impulses that arise in us that lead us to do unskillful things that make things worse for ourselves and others, that cause, that cause uh, suffering for ourselves and others. And the insight that we gain from our practice into the impermanence of things and to the fact that there's nothing that can provide any lasting satisfaction the point where we realize that, we become disillusioned with all of, with the world's pretty things. There's a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha says, sensuality does not lie in the world's pretty things. A man's sensuality lies in thoughts of passion. While the world's pretty things remain as they are, the wise remove the desire for them. It's not particularly a rousing endorsement of sensuality or for pleasant experience, which is what we spend our time trying to cobbled together one way or another. We try to make things pleasant. Anybody not working on that? That's, <laughs> you know, it's sort of the guiding, you know, one of the guiding principles is, is uh, um, pleasant experience. But there's nothing that lasts. Even the most pleasant and wonderful experience changes. If you got everything you wanted at one instant, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> and once, once that insight arises, there's disillusionment with the world's pretty things. And disenchantment with the kind of um, uh, you know, with, with, with the benefits of chasing after 
pleasant experience. And then dispassion, which means equanimity in the face of both pleasant and unpleasant experience. Pleasant experience is going to come. Unpleasant experience is going to come and go. Almost on its own. We work at trying to make things pleasant, but I don't know how successful we are. Pleasant comes and pleasant goes. In my experience, yeah, I work at it, but it doesn't always work. You know, and sometimes when I least expect it, things could be wonderful. No, it's sort of random in some ways. Dispassion even about the dissatisfaction with the world. Because dukkha, the dissatisfaction that we have with our experience, you know, if we, if we have aversion to it, we want to get rid of it, stomp it out, well, we're dissatisfied with our dissatisfaction even. And we can be dissatisfied with our dissatisfaction about our dissatisfaction. You know how that one goes. When the Buddha described in the Noble Truths, the first one, which is that dissatisfaction is built in. If satisfaction is an issue for you, you're going to be dissatisfied. It's the truth of the way life is. Everyone's life includes the unsatisfying as well as the, as the, as well as the wonderful, the pleasant as well as the unpleasant the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. They're all our heritage. So the trick is not to try to beat dukkha into submission, <laughs> but to understand it. The task with the First Noble Truth is to understand just what's going on. What is this dissatisfaction like? Where does it come from? to study it. I'm in a bad mood? Not, I got to get out of this bad mood. What is this, what's, what's this bad mood about? How did I get here? What, is, what does it feel like physically? What's the stories that are going on? Study it. Become aware of it. Bring your mindfulness to the condition, to the bad mood, to the dissatisfaction. Not that Dukkha is anything to do to do anything about it, just to, it's to be understood. Really, it's the heart of the Buddha's teachings. He said, I teach two things, suffering, dukkha, and the end of suffering. Ayakema, who was a, a Buddhist nun, used to say, everything besides the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. Really, the first and the first noble truth to understand that is the heart. What keeps us from doing that is what Buddha Dasa used to call Ajahn Buddha Dasa was a Thai forest monk in the last century who uh, who used to say that what keeps us from that is the bait, the world's bait, the pretty things. Um, I, have a, I have a question. Please. So somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Is a fine distinction between passivity mm-hmm. and taking action without necessarily striving. Correct. 
But if you're in a situation that's perhaps not healthy or too stressful or in some way unsatisfying that seems unnecessary, mm -hmm. there should, I mean, is there unsatisfying that's unnecessary? And do, do you know, I mean, there should be some kind of call to action. The action that's called for is perhaps compassionate action. It's not anger. You know, often in response to dissatisfaction, we get angry, irritated, cranky, grumpy, you know. Um, but without that, I mean, one could hear those words and say, oh, maybe I should just accept this as suffering and stay where this is and it will come and it will go and well, on and on. Well, that but certainly may happen. Isn't there also an opportunity? Absolutely. And the, the idea is not to be passive. I think passivity um, is in, in this situation is an idea that comes up in our mind when we, when we hear the teaching. But in reality, if you walked outside and there was someone, you know, abusing a child, you would act. It just would happen. You know, you wouldn't say, ah, unpleasant experience. <laughs> you know, you, the action would come. The action can come from a compassionate place in order to relieve suffering. It can come from a generous place. There are skillful intentions, generosity, kindness, compassion, and there are unskillful ones which don't, which don't help. Um, our own our own longing and greed, our aversion and anger, irritation, those kinds of things are not particularly helpful. So it's not just whether action or no action, it's also the kind the kind of action. But in order, first of all, to be able to deal with dissatisfaction, the idea is to understand it first. Because if we act out of a mistaken notion, if if we're wrong in what we we perceive, you know, there's a, I was talking about this during the precept class this morning, um, there's a, uh, a very commonly told story about the, in India, about the, the guy who's walking along and he sees a snake on the road and he jumps back and then he realizes it's just a piece of rope. When you, if you are mistaken, it still generates intention and action. Once you see things as they really are, you can respond more appropriately and without, without making things worse. So the idea is to understand the nature of our own dissatisfaction and act out of compassion for ourselves as well, for our own dissatisfaction. And, and, and compassion can certainly come to ourselves. It's, it's, it's more than appropriate to uh, attend to our own suffering. Uh, with kindness and compassion. And that, that is action. Um, hmm. The way the bait works is that we imagine the pleasures of getting what we want. And that can be either getting what we want or making what we don't want go away. It'll be great as soon as... X. And we, we imagine that. And we'll conjure it up maybe in an image or a little story or maybe a little movie from a different angle, a different think it over again. And, and we respond to that. We, you know, getting what we want makes us feel good. And so 
we have this this pleasant relationship to the imagery in our mind. And we think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> and so we, we chase after that, that carrot. So dispassion, just recognizing the impulses that arise in us that may not be skillful and may, may make things uh, more awkward, may make things worse for ourselves and others. The second of the elements is to being fettered or, or unfettered. And what's interesting about the notion of being fettered is that in the Buddhist teachings, we're fettered by our own actions. You guys know about the... Uh, I actually don't know whether this really exists, but you know about the, 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 it's the monkey trap, the Indonesian monkey trap? And the idea is you take a coconut and you hollow it out and you tie it all up in vines and you anchor it to the ground. And you cut a hole in it that's just the size for the monkey to put its hand in and you put some rice or something in there. And the monkey reaches in and grabs the rice and then when it's got it, it's in his fist, it can't get the fist out. And so as the monkey sits there watching the hunter come with the club, it, would, it could be free in an instant if it let go but it doesn't let go. And we're like that. We hold on to our, our, well, often to our thoughts and opinions, which become the, like the rice and the monkey trap. Um, we're, we're fettered by, our, by the views that we hold, by the things that we won't let go of, that we can't, are unable to let go of. To being unfettered is to, to be able to let them go. We're fettered by a number of things. The Buddha talked about the defilements, which uh, the first of them is our, our, our preference for pleasant experience. The fact that we want that pleasant experience. You know, when you, when you encounter the political scene and they do the politics of hope and fear, you know, conjuring up a pleasant future or a scary future. You know, we're fettered, we're, we're, we fetter ourselves by our compulsion for pleasant experience. Not that there's anything wrong with it. In fact, you know, in terms, in evolutionary terms, it's pretty good that we have that. Because if we were, I mean, imagine a creature that that preferred pain. You know, it's not that it's not going to be passing on its genes very, very effectively. So it's you know, in evolutionary terms, it's a it's a it's a it's helpful, but it does tend to lead to suffering if we can't, if we aren't free to let go. <clears throat> the desire to be something in the future, something that fetters us, the idea of what we will become, or becoming anything. You know? So it, it includes, you know, what we call the survival instinct, the desire to be whatever it is we want to become. We can fill, fill in the blank 
It might just be the owner of a new car. It might be the one who um, gets a set of clear test results. It's what you we're fettered by the expectation relates to the future. So let's take a look at how we orient we orient ourselves towards how we're going to be in the future. And we're fettered by our thought, what the Buddha called delusion, that we're going to make ourselves happy by getting what we want. That's the way we organize our lives most of the time, and I guess the question is, you know, how, how that's how that's working <laughs> working out so far. You know, we keep working at it. Um, but we are trapped by our own clinging to that notion and to views and opinions that we have. We cling to our views and opinions. Anybody ever gotten into an argument with a friend over a view or an opinion? Just about universal. You know, I, I can think of a couple of times in my own life when it's cost a relationship because I had my idea and they were wrong. <laughs> They'd only seen the light. You know, interestingly, the the story the 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 story of I'm right and they're wrong is is usually the story that's going on when anger is present. Have you ever noticed that? <clears throat> they're wrong. I'm right. You don't get angry at the weather usually. You can get irritated because it's it's interfering. But you don't go out unless you're King Lear and and scream and scream at the weather and get mad. Get mad at somebody with an intention. They're wrong. I'm right. So the attachment to to um, our own opinions is a fetter. It's not letting go of them keeps our keeps us trapped as as monkeys get trapped. Shedding. This is just not a sexy one. You know, shedding as opposed to accumulating. But shedding, letting go, abandoning, renunciation, they're all words that that refer to the same kind of thing. And particularly when it applies to our our judgments about the way things should be. Our judgments become very... um, Anybody not have judgments about the situation in Arizona? I mean, and, and yet it is the way it is. And often our judgments keep us from seeing things the way they are. I was talking at a friend over the other night and the subject of um, Sarah Palin's website with the crosshairs. We all know about Anybody not know about that? About that? Uh, apparently she put a website up um, with targeting uh, members of Congress. There were a dozen or 15 of them, and there was a circle with the crosshairs like in a gun site, 
and one of the one of the districts was um, the one in Arizona where where uh, yeah yeah was was where the shooting occurred, and when she was asked because it it's it just got out all all over the the internet. She said, oh, that didn't have anything to do with guns or anything. And my friend said, how could she say that it doesn't have anything to do? And I thought, well, that's just a perfect example. I said, well, she just opened her mouth and said it. The, the, the judgment was, <laughs> you know, so she just couldn't see that, yeah, she could do it. Easy to do. It was, it was just a moral thing. Shouldn't be that way. And so strong that the fact, not only that she could, but that other people would hear that and res- resonate to it, was just invisible. Because the judgment itself, the idea about the way things should be instead of the way things are. So shedding is a way, you know, shedding our judgments. You can change, you can exchange your judgment about the way things ought to be for your ability to see things just as they are. It's a, it's a kind of exchange. The Buddha uses the, the concept of shedding um, in another sutta, in, in the Sutta Napada, he talks about uh, shedding as a, sh- as a snake sheds its worn out skin. We just step away from those things. From in the same way that the toys that enthralled you when you were eight, I, I you know, my my granddaughter loves the American Girl dolls. If any of you know, and just totally enthralled by them. But I'll bet you in another ten years, they'll be on a shelf somewhere. You know, just it falls away. It's not like it's beaten into submission. It's we grow out of them. And so the invitation here, of course, is letting go of our opinions about the way things should be. We all have opinions, ideas about how things should be. And, and those opinions form the basis of all of our judgments. Our judgments are always focused around some idea of how things should be. And then we compare our experience with it's wrong, it's bad, and we have aversion to our experience based on an opinion. And when there's aversion, we just don't see the way things are because we're so busy. Please. So, um, I'm having difficulty coining your question here, but I have it in my mind. I'll okay. try. Excuse me. Okay. I understand what you're saying completely, and I understand what stepping away is. But at some point, sometimes... Um, if you're a mom, there are certain responsibilities which border on judgment and your opinion mm-hmm. of another individual having certain responsibilities towards an offspring. Is that judgment or where, where does it lie? Well, you know, we were talking about this during the precept class earlier. These, this is, these, these are not bright line, this is right, that is wrong. In the same way 
that the precept about, I, I guess the example I use, the precept about speaking, refraining from speaking falsely, refraining from false speech. It's not that speaking truth is good and speaking falsely is wrong. It's not that you should never speak falsely. I can, you know, I, there's, I can imagine a situation in which speaking the truth would be downright unethical. You know, if the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? And you say, you got me. She's in the attic behind the fake bookcase. I can't tell a lie. That's a situation where you just, you lie. You know, the ethical action is to lie. But the idea here is to notice what we're clinging to. And yes, there are things, you know, to teach children. And actually, it's not, it's not uh, unskillful to teach about um, do this and don't do that. And, and for, you know, for, for guiding uh, behavior. But for us, we can become, you know, we... We, we suffer with our own judgments, particularly about ourselves. I should be this, I shouldn't be that. Anybody ever got any of that? You know, all of those notions become the, the basis for judgment, which can be very painful. Because what's painful is the aversion that, that it generates for ourselves and for others. And that aversion is not pleasant. And and not helpful. It's not, it doesn't give rise to compassion. It gives rise to irritation. Make it go away. So it's not so much that you shouldn't, uh, I mean, certainly when, when there's a responsibility to protect, we use, we use the, the techniques and skills that we've got available. But, for, but we should know what we're doing. We should do it mindfully. And when we take a look at just how, particularly the self-criticism that we all enjoy so much, <laughs> we're really good at it, exquisite at times. Um, and to see where that's coming from, and it comes from ideas that we have about the way things are. You know, Byron Katie has a series of practices for helping pry us loose from some of those things that we compulsively, you know, I should be this, I shouldn't be that, I should be working hard, I shouldn't be so lazy, I should be more relaxed and calm, I shouldn't be so uptight. I'm not quite sure that they go together, but we can, we can demand conflicting things of ourselves. Um, and we don't, when we do that, we don't see just how things are because we're lost in the aversion Ashan Jumnian has, has an example. He says, when, when the moth flies, sees the flame, the only thing he sees is the flame. Everything else is dark. It's like the object of desire. What the moth doesn't see is its own compulsion to fly towards that. And what we don't see is our own compulsion, our own clinging. We just see the view that shouldn't be this way, should be different. Now, for a mom, we, we see, you know, we're, our job is to keep our children safe. So we do what we can to keep them safe. 
Uh, and we do the best we can. This is not a moralistic right or wrong. This is to be as mindful as we can and watch what we do so that we do it as, as skillfully with, as, with the least amount of uh, um, discomfort in ourselves as well. As well. But the shedding is... Um, hmm, we're, this is not a culture that, that rewards shedding. Now, any of you ever been to the restaurant Claim Jumper? It's it's a no. It's really this is a restaurant where the, the portions are really really too big, really too big. As in an appetizer is the size of a meal, and the cake slices are this high, and you know it's just accumulating more and more and more. And the idea here is to let go. So shedding and <clears throat> shedding dispassion, yeah. Um, I think I'm back to Sarah Phelan things. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm with your visitor. Uh huh. How could she say that? And yeah, or how could she not understand that there may be some connection there? And so I've been when I got here today. I thought, oh, good, maybe we'll talk about this whole thing, and I'll get some enlightenment about like. Oh, I just had a horrible thought. I was going to make a comment about abnormal psychology, but... (laughs) I'm sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I, you know... How how to, um, I guess, have a Buddhist view of... I mean, obviously, Sarah Palin doesn't see a connection, I guess. She might. We don't know. But anyway... Sarah Palin is someone who, um, and you see Aaron, Aaron Sorkin's column about her reality show, who can shoot a moose for political purposes. You know? So who knows what she sees or doesn't see? We can project all over her, our own, our own views. You know, we just don't know. But what we can see is that even in the midst of what's going on in Arizona, she can respond with some ethnic slur. I don't know whether you saw her comment overnight <clears throat> about uh, blood libel. You know what blood libel is? No. Mm. It's, oh, just gives me chills. It's a, a phrase that was thrown at Jews in the Middle Ages. It was a... Uh, the, the idea was that Jews would take uh, children. They were needed f- and cook them into... Uh, they needed their blood for some of their rituals. And it was part of an anti-Semitic thing. And so she used the term uh, as if it were being applied to her. So I don't know what she's doing. I don't understand her, um, really. Um, but it looks like she's got one thing on her mind, and that is political aggression, you know? And I don't, I'm not quite sure I understand that. Um, but I can't say, how could she do that? She can't be rational. She can't be this. She's, you know, a lot of us are dysfunctional in our ways, you know? Um, please. Maybe she was 
maybe what she in her mind I mean, maybe in her mind she's thinking I did that that was a metaphor you know, I didn't mean that you're supposed to shoot these she's women. defensive yeah maybe that's there's a lot of defensiveness there. Yeah. There's a lot of defensiveness, so some of it may be that. But, you know, we, ex- we expect people to be rational. People should be consistent. Anybody think people should be consistent? Well, that's just that the people should be, but are we? No. So the Buddhist perspective is to look at how we are. We, we say we should be consistent, and we aren't consistent. Others aren't. We act surprised when they're not. Well, that's pretty consistent with her, right? <laughs> well, it's consistent. It's consistent. I I know. It's it's and with right. You know, the the idea is to just look at how it is. You know, and and it stirs up in us. We don't have any opportunity to act out on this at all. Um. So it just basically gets us upset. We get upset ourselves because of the ideas we have about the way things should be, and then we encounter the world, and it's not that way, and we get upset. Sort of that, how it works? No. So to, to, to view this with dispassion, for example, there's no need to get all frothy about, you know, Richard and I had a conversation about this. You know, there's no, we don't need to get all riled up. It's not going to make a difference except in our own hearts. And so how's the best way for us to remain open and compassionate without cultivating anger and irritation and the kinds of things that that can make things less pleasant all around? How can we, how can we, Make things better rather than than worse. Now it's it's really tough. Yeah, please. Well, this is you know it's so disturbing, but I notice how quickly it's turned into a political debate, mm-hmm. uh, which is really sad. We're we're very conditioned. There's a lot of conditioning out there, to and and there's a lot of discussion about the tenor of our of our public conversation. <laughs> Because it's it's a habit. Yeah. It's a habit. And it's habits are are hard to break because usually what we do is we we try to assault them rather than just start doing something more skillful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. What we know what we know for a fact is that six people are dead and several are wounded and that is to me that is so sad. That this the political discourse on either side is just is inflammatory and it's just to me it, it it's not necessary and it's it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just feel like yeah. I mean, that's the way. That's the way it is in this neck of the woods. We don't like it. Uh, not necessarily. It's, it suggests that we start by recognizing where we are. And then we should respond by not making things worse. So we, we don't want to add to the negative discourse. What kind of a person would da 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 Well, that's not... 
conciliatory. That's not a compassionate or kind response. So how do we then address, it's a koan, how do we address that dissatisfaction with the way things are in a way that's skillful, that, that attenuates the dissatisfaction in ourself and others? That's our job is to abandon that craving, that wishing it were different kind of thing that um, leads us to unskillful action. The, the Buddha said his teachings, you know, avoid what makes things worse, work on what makes things better, and cultivate your mind so you can tell the difference. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. And I have to confess, I am getting confused. Okay. Um, because it seems like we're saying that Buddhism has no p- political implications. Um, that's that's what I'm starting to hear. The Dalai Lama is a political animal, actually. It, really, but I'm troubled by it. Um, no, the the Dalai Lama is as is as a head of state. He's a political animal. He's, but his response is not one of anger. And so the tendency to respond to what we don't like is to get irritated with it, to get angry. And so the Buddhist response is, well, if you see an oppressed person and an oppressor, you can offer aid to the oppressed person. You can offer some kind of, I don't know, counseling to the oppressor. But it's different... That's a compassionate response, trying to relieve the suffering, rather than getting angry at the oppressor and yelling and screaming. And, and uh, So the idea is not to pursue anger when it arises, but to abandon, shed the anger, let the anger go, and work with the skillful intentions. The skillful intentions, generosity, kindness, compassion, there's plenty of room for, uh, my eyes were closed, so I'm not sure someone has a, a friend in Haiti. I had a friend, a young friend who went to Haiti last, last summer. You know, that's, that's political and compassionate um, to go screaming and yelling, not so much. You know, there's plenty of room for political action, but not necessarily... Uh, anger doesn't doesn't make things better. The Buddha said, "Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred." So it's just the kind of political action of, you know, signs and protests in the street, maybe motivated by anger, which is not going to be peaceful for you or for the those the others either. Is that helpful at all? I mean, so to your friend, did you say, I think Sarah Palin needs some compassionate counseling? <laughs> no, but that actually would have been a kind of, the kind of thing I might have said. <clears throat> what I, I, I addressed the fact that, that, uh, uh, that, in fact, she could say it. She did say it, and there were a lot of people probably who agree with her and, and hear what she says, and it resonates. You know? Uh, you can go to her... Twitter page and see how many people it resonates with. It's daunting. 
so we can judge them all and write them off. Or we can, you know, what do we do in our hearts? How do we hold them in our hearts in a way that doesn't, that isn't painful for ourselves as well? shouldn't make things worse for ourselves. And actually, are we, we're not in her presence, so we're not about to offer her counseling. And if we did, she probably wouldn't take it. I, I would be wary, actually, <laughs> of offering her counseling. Um, but I'm, just to notice our own response here and how, how painful it is and how... The, the reaction is to want to smack it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how to formulate a question out of this, but it's just something I've been dealing with a lot in my own practice. The Sarah Palin thing seems all too convenient. It's uh-huh. easy. It's right there. But I think we could look within our own mindful communities to see many examples of uh, unconvenient things that happen that we choose to ignore every day. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything jump out for you? Well, I, I don't know. I kind of feel uncomfortable addressing it here. Sure. Only because uh, I, I mean, I, I've been looking a lot at the, I won't get into details, but contradictions that exist within um, Tibetan Buddhism mm-hmm. and the feudal history of Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, Pre-Dalai Lama where, you know, Mm-hmm. A lot of people were tortured and, and stuff like that, um, or didn't belong to the monasteries. So, but I also have been encountering so many wonderful Tibetan teachers sure. that have enlightened me so much. But I, I'm, I'm very interested in social engaged Buddhism. Sure, it's one of the one of the items is is engagement mm-hmm. and not isolation. It's the, the, what I'm, I think what the Buddha is pointing at here is away from the unskillful intentions based on unskillful understanding and judgment. Because an idea about the way things should be, things are the way they are. They are the way they are, whether we like it or not. So let's start where you, know, start where you are and move in a positive direction move in a positive direction. So if we go out swinging at the things we don't like, we're probably not going to, uh, I mean, if we're not bringing kindness to it, we won't be greeted with kindness in response. Yeah? What I've noticed is that we, we tend to accept natural disasters regardless of how horrid it is a little bit easier than man-made Right. Perhaps if we look within ourselves to find out what is it, what is it that makes us accept a yeah. natural disaster? Well, How it's much more readily than Maybe that's where the answer is. It's like I, I was saying about the weather. We don't go out and scream at the storm. Nobody goes out. The floods are, are taking over Brisbane, and people aren't, you know, standing there and, you know, spitting at the tide as it comes in and, you know, yelling nasty things. Um, 
but we, we attribute motivation and intention. And the, you know, it's, the action comes out of the conditions that gave rise to you know, whoever those people are and whoever, who we are. Um, our responses are conditioned as well by our understanding, which was conditioned by our background and our, our, and our physiology and all kinds of stuff, the culture generally. <laughs> And I guess we're, we're, we're stuck in this place the way it is. And so we, you know, my view is to make it, to make it better as we can and do the best we can. We may not be able to transform the desert into an Eden, but we can do what we can with the best intention we've got. Yeah. Some people, some people attend to that, and some people don't. You know, I mean, Sarah Palin can say it doesn't have anything to do with guns. Rush Limbaugh said that uh, the shooter is being supported by the Democratic Party. So you can say, how can he say that? Well, you know, just watch. It's awesome. People do unbelievable things. Unbelievable things. Did you want to say something, Marty? I'll whip through the last five elements here really quickly. No, it's that's fine. This is this is this is clearly what's what's up for everybody. Because it, we're talking about so many different levels. In precepts, we were talking about, and you were talking about shedding, shedding the skin. As you come to a deeper understanding, the way you understand the precepts is going to be different. Um, that's one thing. <clears throat> I, I think that uh, we all have to reckon with the fact that Whatever we see manifesting out there, done by any human being, is somewhere or other in us as well. I remember when I was a child pushing um, this little boy off of his bicycle. You know, it, I, I, I registered uh, a certain kind of cruelty, a certain kind of so really being able to look at the way things are, both in ourselves and out there, and not lie about it, but understand, really face it, really look at it. And then when you're dealing with Sarah Palin or anybody out there in the world who is doing things that, that you feel are um, you know, unspeakably horrible, uh, because there, that is what's out there, you can come at it from a different place if you acknowledge that 
Yeah, this is part of the human condition, the human experience, and all of us <coughs> touch it in some way. It's not like some of us are pristine and have no modicum of, you can't relate to, to it if you don't in some way or another know it. And then you can come at it from a different, a different place where you might actually be able to do something. And that's where the compassion comes in. Right. And, and just to regard things as they are, to look at, at how, how they are rather than how in terms, through the lens of how they should be and so it isn't right. You know, I, I see you having trouble with that. You know, I remember sitting at a, at a meeting and I'd heard stories about uh, a particular person who was going to be at this meeting and so I had a huge, but I'd never seen her before. And so some people came in across the room at the other side of this table and I was just sort of watching and someone, and noticing, you know, what you notice, the way they're dressed, the body language and what's going on. And then someone said, that's so-and-so. And all of a sudden I could actually watch it happen. All of the judgments just went... Right, you know, just and so all of a sudden I couldn't see what what she was doing anymore because I, the judgments just totally clouded my ability to 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 see that anymore. So if the judgment is really strong, if your idea about how things should be is something you cling to very tightly, when you look at your experience, you're only you're only going to encounter aversion. And the aversion is, is, you won't even see the aversion, just like the moth doesn't see the compulsion to fly into the flame. And we just act out on it. The impulse arises. Mindfulness, mindful awareness includes awareness of our own impulses, not just of the sense data that comes in, what we see with our eyes and the words we hear. It's, it also includes our own response. And to and to to be mindful of that because that response when it's when it's unskillful when it's angry when it's longing craving it's not helpful for us and it's not helpful for others either. Please. Um, just really quickly, in response to what you said about parenting a little earlier, um, I have yet to be a parent, which is good. But uh, I'm still like a like a son, and I'm still pretty young, so I still get a lot of parenting. Um, and just like there should definitely be like this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't. Like that comes from a place of love and just wanting your kids to do what's going to make them happy. But where it becomes a problem, I think, is when it's after they do do something wrong. Like uh, you're so locked into the you shouldn't have done it that it's hard to take the time to understand why they did what they did. And you're just so angry that you can't even deal with them. Like if if you can, like let that should not and should go in the moment. Like once they've already done something, then like you can deal with like them as they are. Um, but if you're like so upset that you can't even look at them, then there's no way to work with them. So I think that's kind of the connection between the two things. And it's not that you shouldn't be causing your child physical discomfort if you get them an uh, an inoculation. They don't want it, but you, you know, initial the pain, causing them discomfort, but the intention is not there. The key here is the intention. 
the intention you bring, if the intention is to make it go away, to swat at it, to smack it back. You know, if it's coming out of anger, it's not going to cultivate kindness and compassion, which, you know, if you were to choose how to live and how you would be at a particular moment, it would be kind and open and loving, I think, rather than that wonderful anger. (laughs) It's not pleasant. Anger isn't pleasant. And sometimes, you know, and so fighting for what we think is right, we hear that a lot, but, you know, how helpful is that? For yourself, for your own heart. Yeah, please. I just wanted to, um, I was struck by something that is hap- or has happened or is about to happen in Arizona <coughs> during the funeral of a little girl, and that there's a church that protests. Um, at funerals in a particularly painful way against the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a group of people that instead of going down and um, trying to beat up the protesters, um, they're, they decided that they are going to um, make big angel wings and stand in the perimeter so that the, the family doesn't have to see the protesters. <coughs> and so that it just reminds me of there is, you know, there's action you can take in a very, yeah. coming from a compassionate place and totally taking the anger out of right. the equation and just, sta- you know, a nonviolent. Rather than going, getting into action. a scuffle and having a big, yeah. a big brawl outside the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. Please. That, that group is intercultural, it's interfaith, it's really a beautiful melding of, of uh-huh. a lot of different philosophies. Yeah, and it's a great example of a a positive response, a political response, yes. Yes. that's not that's not coming from anger, that's not making things worse. You know. Now they can beat their wings. <laughs> they can. They can. Well, the Buddha's, the Buddha's teaching is not one of, well, it's one of engagement, but not one of angry engagement, not one of challenging. The last one is to be unburdensome. And the Buddha was asked, he was sitting in the forest one day, and one of his cousins, who was not a fan of his, came by and said, this is in the Honeyball Sutta, and he said, Sort of, as I read it, there's sort of a sneer in his voice. Says, "What is the Holy One teaching? What is it that you teach?" And the Buddha said, "I teach a Dharma that does not contend with anyone." That may be hard to comprehend, but that's a koan as well. What does it mean? What would it mean? What could he possibly be teaching if it doesn't contend with anyone? I think of the time when all the monks were squabbling among themselves and the Buddha finally gave up and he left. And he went to see another cousin who was a a 
follower, a monk who was living with a few other people in the forest. And the Buddha showed up and he said to his cousin Anuruddha, he said, do you guys get along out here? And Anuruddha said, yeah, we do. And he said, well, how do you do that? I left these guys back here who were sort of, you know, cranky. And Anuruddha said, well, I, f- I think it's such a blessing that I can share my life with these others that I say, why not set aside what I want to do and do what they want to do? And they do the same. That's a pretty, that's a pretty tall order. And we may not be able to be like that all the time. But it can be a guiding star for us. The Buddhist teaching was, was, he was, uh, he he didn't make it easy. He didn't give baby steps particularly. Um, And he was, he was uh, challenging. And so the you know the Dharma is about you know the things the, the eight things he said this is how you can recognize his teaching you know, dispassion and that doesn't mean no action it means no craving no no uh, no anger and aversion dispassion being unfettered shedding modesty. Contentment. This culture does not. If anything, this culture distills discontent. It should be better always. Persistence. There's no awakened retirement here. There's no fully awakened. There's continual awakening. It's a process. Continual awakening, not fully awakened. And unburdensome. Not contend with anyone. How would that be to live in that way? And still bring, you know, these people with the, with the wings aren't contending. They aren't fighting. But they're, they're making, making the place way better. So I know we're running late. Um, and I appreciate all the feedback. It's much better when you guys participate than when I just rattle on. Any last thoughts or comments? I guess I'd just like to say that I appreciate your flexibility in allowing us to explore something that's going on for all of us rather than leaving that unspoken. Uh-huh. Well, it's, you know, it, it, I, I punched a button. One of these things punched mm-hmm. a button, and everybody, uh, we all lit up. It's, <laughs> it's, um, let me, let me end with, uh, with the metta sutta. 
because the Metta Sutta contains all of the Buddha's teachings, and so we can compare ourselves and our situation here with the Buddha's recommendation. It, con- it contains all of his teachings. It's the same as the Eightfold Path, but it's from the standpoint of the heart. He said, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, And let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, those seen and unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, those on talk radio and those not. (laughs) May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with the boundless heart should one cherish all living beings even those with whom you disagree. Radiating kindness over the entire world, reaching upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And apply that to our situation. And I thank you for your attention. I'm... I think I'm scheduled to be here sometime later this spring. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.